0: You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Well, kids, you are free to go to your class. We have Ben back there with his hand up. Ben is just the jack of all trades. He does it all. <laughs> does announcements, he's teaching kids today, and he is a really really great speaker. Uh, So, yes, kids, there you go. If this is your first time, I'm the pastor. My name is David Rudy, and it is really, really great to have you here today. You came on a great Sunday. It's our second birthday, as we've been talking about. Make sure you don't just leave afterwards. We have a really friendly church. We love to talk to each other. And grab a cupcake with us, even if you, you know, don't know us yet. These are the type of people that you're—the people around you that you see in this room. Like, these are the type of people— who will love you, and who you need to get to know. To have a relationship with these people is one of the greatest things that I've ever experienced in my, my life. And my wife and I would both agree with that. Uh, I really truly am thankful when I think about two years, like what God has done in the lives of the individual people who are the church, who have committed to what Jesus Christ has called them to do, have sacrificed, have served, have given, It's just overwhelming. God's faithfulness has been so evident every week. And it's grown my faith, and I know it's grown the faith of many of you that are here. I was thinking about the first time we ever had an offering. And this was when we were called Vertical Church. And my wife and I, you know, we raised all this money before we came here and moved to Spartanburg. We had raised money. A lot of friends and family gave towards this church. Uh, But the very first offering, it was an elderly couple who just came to one of our vision meetings, and they threw in $10 into the offering plate. That was the only $10 we got in our first offering. And I, I said thank you afterwards, and they said, yeah, that was my cigarette money. I'm trying to quit, so I thought I may as well just give it to the church. And, like, that, I mean, isn't that great? Like, I love that, but that was the start here in Spartanburg, and, like, now we're experiencing all that God has done through us, your sacrifice, your generosity, Um, I just love all of you, and I want to say we wouldn't be here without you because you are Daxa Church. Well, take your Bibles, turn to the book of James. We're in the middle of a series here. We're calling the series Faith Does. James is a really small letter towards the very end of your Bible, and every week we have been looking at a different aspect of living a genuine Christian life. This is a really practical series, very simple. Last week, we were in the first 12 verses of James chapter 3, and we saw that our tongues are a restless evil full of deadly poison. Pretty bold words, right? Uh, We saw that no human being can change the tongue. So left on our own, we have no hope of changing the way we speak. What are we left with? Is there anybody who's perfect? Because the passage alludes to that. We've been talking about this all week. I know our life group had amazing conversations about it. I've heard other life groups that have been having very practical, applicational conversations. The only way that we can change that is to have a heart change. And that's what this entire series has been alluding to. Your identity changes your activity. So James is consistently hitting this theme. Today is going to be no different. Changing your sentences would just be a temporary Band-Aid, okay? You don't need a swear jar. What you need is a new heart. Only a healthy tree produces good fruit. And fresh water only comes out of a fresh spring, not a dead pond. And in similar fashion, just like the beginning of James chapter 3, we're going to see today two specific ways that you can ultimately start changing your desires. So the heart change happens by God. It's a gift of God. And then there's actions that we can put into place to aid that along. You can live by either the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world, this passage is going to call this worldly wisdom, or you can live for the wisdom that comes from above, true wisdom. This passage is going into the philosophical, the ideological, core of who you are as a person. And the bottom line that we're going to see is part of Jesus changing you from the inside out includes you walking away from the world's wisdom and walking towards Jesus towards true wisdom. So let's go to the text. You can follow along with me as I read from James chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up right where we left off in verse 13. I'm going to read all the way down to the end of the chapter who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts and do not boast and be and do not boast do not boast and be false to the truth this is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly unspiritual demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The first point that we have here today is really from the first verse. Live out your faith. With the meekness of true wisdom. This is where it begins today. So let's define some words here, first of all. Wisdom goes beyond knowledge, it's the application of knowledge. You could say that wisdom is the art of skillfully living. And verse 13 definitely fits with the overall narrative of this entire book because James didn't just tell us uh, faith without works is dead and let's just move on and, and leave us with that and not say anything else about it. He starts by saying, right here in chapter three, are there any wise and understanding among you? Okay, this is a probing, self analytical question. We'll then prove that by how you live your life. And it goes beyond your words. You have to have something with your actions, and this should be with the meekness of wisdom. What is meekness? Meekness is not a very popular concept in our current climate. You don't see a lot of meekness from cable news, the cycle there. You don't see a lot of meekness from Hollywood or in culture in general. Meekness is the opposite of arrogant self-assertiveness. It is what many have called strength under control. It's not weakness, but it's the attitude of a heart that says, I am going to rein this strength in because I am under someone else, and I'm following someone who's greater than I it's being gentle and impactful at the same time. Back in James 1 verse 21, James used the same word when he said, therefore put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we're to be strong, but to corral that passion and energy by putting it under the control of the Holy Spirit. Listen with your ear in meekness, and now we are to act wisely with the confidence that this same spiritual source um, who controls you, who guides you, and you are willingly putting yourself under the leading of God. Now, in these six verses, it is all about the false wisdom of this world and then the true wisdom that is from above. And there's a way to live that is wise, and there is a way to live that is absolutely foolish. You'd be be hard-pressed, to find someone who would disagree with that statement. Um, I mean, it's 2020, we can pull out our phones and you can see in a minute some very foolish things happening out there in the world for all to see, right? I mean, that's that's just the world we live in. I mean, I think back in the 90s, you'd hear people be like, oh, you do you, just, oh, there's no dumb way to live, just do whatever, man, it's fine. Like, the way people are opinionated now and the way things are nowadays, on entrenched on all these sides, like, no one's just going to be like, oh, fine, whatever. Like, no, if, if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. So, so that's kind of the way we're, where we're at right now. Um, but there is most definitely a wise way to live and a foolish way to live. James agrees with that. And he's about to compare and contrast these two paths that you have in your own life. Now, before we go there into all these verses and we really, like, look at the differences, I want to set this up by looking at two foundational truths about God's character. I think it's very important for us to understand the wisdom uh, that includes meekness. We have to back up just a second and grasp these truths. Before you believe and embrace what James is about to say, you have to line up with what true wisdom really is. And understanding these two truths are crucial in understanding the meaning of life. And it's impossible to live with meekness if you don't already understand these two truths. So here they are. I think you see them up on the screen behind me. God is for his glory, and you were made for his glory. These two truths are throughout the book of James, they're throughout the entire Bible, And if you don't have that down, you're never going to have the meekness of true wisdom. So quite simply, what do I mean when I say God is for his glory? What does that really mean? It means that God is for himself ultimately because he is God. And it means that you aren't the point of it all. You are not the son that everything revolves around. And I know that is a hard pill for some people to swallow. A lot of people never learn this from their parents the way, the way you raise, they raise their kids, it's like their little child is the center of the universe and everything revolves around them and little Johnny will get what he wants. And then when these kids get out into the real world and they find out that not everybody is for them and not everybody is doing everything for them, it's a scary, frightening place. But deep down, we all want to be the point. We, we all want to live our life. And false wisdom says... God is for me. Look at me. Look how special I am. You are the center of your universe. Earthly wisdom is about you, your preferences, all of your thoughts, your desires, your motives, your conversations. They all revolve around what's best for you. Earthly false wisdom says, if God exists, I'm not going to say this out loud, but this is the way I believe. It's for my benefit. And we live in a post-truth culture our media, our entertainment industry, even the higher education in our country espouses that there is no absolute truth. There's no exact right way to live. There's only a right way for me individually to live. It's my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. I saw a stat today by the Barner Research... It was or yesterday, actually, by the Barner Research Group. And uh, they actually did this study. They're always doing these, these demographic studies. They found out that of millennials... 61% claim to be Christians. It's like, okay, well, that's pretty good. That's a little better than I thought. 61% of millennials claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But when they asked these millennials if they had a biblical worldview, do they believe that the Bible is the source of absolute truth? They believe that that Jesus never sinned, that he died on the cross for our sins. Do you, do you believe that there is a, a devil out there and that there is a heaven and a hell? Guess how many of the millennials that claim to know Christ and follow Christ, guess how many of that percentage have a biblical worldview? 2%. 2%. We have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of people who don't understand these two foundational truths that are just just crucial for you to understand how to walk in wisdom, how to really change into the person God wants you to change into. God is for his glory, first of all. So false wisdom is is the opposite of this. It's making you the God of your life. James is going to build that out in the coming verses, but it's marked by bitterness. It's marked by jealousy and selfish ambition. I mean, think about it. How could it not be? If that's what you're living for and somebody isn't working that for you and, and, and achieving that for you, they're your enemy. The Bible paints such a different picture of God. It reveals the truth of his character in the pages of Scripture. And what it tells us about God is that he is for his glory. He is for his renown, that his name may be praised and worshipped. He is the son that we all revolve around and that he does everything that he does for his praise and his majesty. Now, if you don't already know God, that may sound a little egotistical. But he is God. He created this world and everything in it, including you and I. So there's nothing weird about God being for his glory. He deserves all the glory. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he will bless you. Yes, in many ways he is for you, but you are not the pinnacle of his affections. If you were, that would be completely wrong. You would be God, and God would be an idolater of you. That's not happening. That's not reality. He is the only one who should be worshipped. He is the pinnacle. C.S. Lewis really wrestled with this. And if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he was the professor of medieval literature at Cambridge University in Oxford, England. Okay, So what I mean by that is, I just say that to say he's way smarter than you and I. He's a brilliant man. But for most of his life, before he turned to Christ, C.S. Lewis was an agnostic. His mom died of cancer when he was young. He was in World War I, and he saw a lot of horrific things. So most of his life, he just said, well, if there is a God, he doesn't really care about us because this world is just too painful. There's too much heartache. There's too much awful things happening in my life and the world around me. Now, he did read the Bible because literature was his space. And when he read the Psalms, he said that God sounded, get this, an awful lot like an old lady just fishing for compliments. That was, that was the agnostic C.S. Lewis before he came to Christ. He read the Psalms and he said, here's God. He says, worship me, rejoice in me, make much of me, sing for me, clap for me, dance for me. I mean, we were just in a Psalm series this summer. We saw all of that, right? That's accurate. God is saying that in Scripture. But the more C.S. Lewis read Scripture, the more he saw the revelation of the character of God it finally clicked in place for him. And we could literally go to 100 passages of Scripture that prove that God is for his glory. And when I say literally, I'm not saying that figuratively. I mean it literally. We could go to 100 passages of Scripture in a literal sense. Psalm 23 is is a very well-known passage that we already covered this summer. Psalm 23, what does it say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And you hear this. The person who's like living for themselves and has made themselves the center of the universe is like, yeah, see, look. God is for me. God loves me. He's behind me. He's leading me in these, these green pastures and these still waters. Wow, this is so great. I'm so great. God loves me. But what does the rest of this passage say? He leads me in paths of righteousness For his name's sake. We can't miss this. It's all over scripture. The point is, the driving heart of God and all of his blessing and all of his loving and his encouraging and his saving and his rescuing and his sanctifying, it's for his name's sake. According to Ephesians 1, it's for the praise of his glorious grace. The action of God in restoring your soul is ultimately for his glory so that his name might be praised. And this is what C.S. Lewis came to say about it. And I'm going to read you a, a quote of his, okay? And, and think, this is, this is like an intellectual British man from you know, mid-20th century, so he talks a little different than us. But he says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their lovers, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles. There's a lot to praise out there, right? Even in the the middle of the 1900s, people were praising rare beetles. I love this one. Even sometimes politicians or scholars. People used to praise politicians, believe it or not. But here's the kicker from C.S. Lewis. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of completement that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And this is crucial for you to get this. What God is doing when he says, worship me, delight in me, praise who I am, he's not just begging for compliments. He doesn't need our compliments. He's God, right? What he is doing is he is actually bringing us to the place where we can be who we need to be. Worshiping God completes us. So a delight in God leads to a rejoicing in God that frees up our soul in magnificent ways. We would not be complete in who we were created to be until we are praising God and living for his glory. And the reason we are spending so much time on this is because God being for his glory means life is not about you. And if life is about you, you're going to be doing all of the earthly wisdom ways that are all about selfish ambition and boasting and pride and pain and death in the end. And it is good news that life isn't all about you. The buck doesn't stop at you. The sun doesn't revolve around you. That's actually good news. We get to breathe a little bit. You get to live in the meekness of of, of the freedom that it's not all on you. Ultimately, you're living for someone who is greater than you. I mean, just think about how much easier it is and smoother life is when the pressure isn't all on you. And if you uh, used to have like a really easy job and now you have a really stressful job, you know, I used to be a youth pastor. Being a youth pastor was great. I, I like did all-nighters, played video games with kids, went out and got pizza, had tons of free time to focus on fantasy football. Like it was an amazing job. It was still eternally productive. It was great but it was way less stressful than leading multiple high capacity people than being a pastor of a church dealing with serious problems that I mean you dealt with problems too when you're a youth pastor but the stakes are just raised i mean you know this right like it's a big difference to work for someone and now like i'm starting my own business and it's all on me the pressure is really all on me now it's it's a huge difference Being out in the real world makes (laughs) college look surprisingly easy sometimes. And I know some of you don't want to hear me say that. Like, don't, don't, don't even go there, David. Like, I'm stressed out enough with my classes right now. But yeah, it's true. It's only going to get more complicated out there. The more things are about you, and that's what you're living for, the more miserable you will be. And the more that you understand life is not all about me, the more you are freed up to worship God, the more you are freed up to relax, the more you are able to live with meekness and enjoy the gifts of God and enjoy Him forever. So if God is for His glory that sets me free to not be the point of it all, it means that all the commands of God can be trusted because He's not after begrudging submission, but He's after delightful obedience which will fulfill us. Because we are created beings in his image and our full potential is found in relation with him. And this leads us to the second foundational truth that God has designed the world to work in a specific way, leading for his glory and our joy. This is what he's after. You were made for his glory. That's the second foundational truth. Both of these fit right along if you want to go all the way back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I'm not saying anything new, okay? This is basic Christianity, and you're never going to have peace. You're never going to have wisdom. You're never going to have joy and fulfillment until you understand these crucial truths about God. Do you remember back in James 1.18? I told you when we started this series that it was the key verse in the entire book of James. This book would not make sense without James one let uh, Let's back up into verse 17 and review it again. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's so much wrapped up in, in that. And we've been we've been going back to it week after week after week. But you can see here we are the creature, he is the creator. It really all goes back to us living for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10:31 puts it this way, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I'll say it one more time, <laughs> just so we don't miss this. God designed the world to work in a way that we can participate in how he designed life to work. So we can either rebel against that and veer off into our own path, our own wisdom, or we can trust God's creative design and how he created things to work. Those two foundational truths are the blueprint that establishes what the rest of these verses have to say. And you're probably like, David, we're still in verse 13 here. We got got, uh, five more verses to go, don't worry. Like this, If you get that down, the rest of this is all going to flow. When we're talking about the meekness of wisdom, you have to know these two core truths that God revealed about himself and how you fit into that creative order. The world has their own version of wisdom, and depending on who you're talking to, they always have kernels of truth in it. But God tells us what wisdom is in Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, he says that, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the acceptance that God has designed the world. And as the creator, he tells us who he has designed, how it's supposed to work, how we're supposed to navigate this world. And that transcends what we think or what we feel. He's the one who made it. He knows how it works. And without him, we will just be fumbling our way through life. God does not want us and he's not abandoned us to fumble our way through. He has revealed to us true wisdom as opposed to false wisdom. And this is what he says later on in that chapter in verse 35. For, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. In Proverbs 8, Jesus is the personification of wisdom. So with those two lenses on now, do we all got those? You got those two things? We got those glasses on? God is for his glory, and you were made for his glory. We will look further into what James specifically says about false wisdom of this world and how it is contrasted with the wisdom from above. Let's read verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast to be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Point number two is reject the hostility of earthly wisdom. This is what we have to do. It's hostile. It's ugly. It's nasty. And we have to walk away from it. If your life is just about you and your way, and your motto is there is a way that seems right unto me, and that's the way I'm going to follow, here's the question that you have to ask yourself. How could, at the end of the day, you not be selfish and egotistical? You will be every time. How could you not, in the end, become bitter and frustrated at other people? Because it's not going to come together the way you want it to come together. Earthly wisdom that replaces God with yourself And it puts your glory over his glory always ends in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition because you were it. And it's not going to work because you were made for God and God is bigger than you. You were made for someone so much bigger than yourself. So if you categorically reject his will and his way for your will and your way, this is saying you will fall into selfish ambition and you will be false to the truth. Not only will you boast, but you will verge into lying. You have to boast and you have to lie because your identity is wrapped up in yourself. And there's no truth standard outside of yourself to set true north. And This is where a lot of people are. A lot of the people that we deal with day in, day out, a lot of the people that influence what we listen to, what we hear, what we think, a lot of those people are going down this path of worldly wisdom. And if you look closely, you will see it everywhere. I mean, people who are miserable, they work really hard at convincing you that they're not miserable. People whose personal lives are a complete mess will just pretend that everything is all fine. You know these people, right? I can think of names right now. I mean, you probably work with these people. I, I know there's probably some of those people in this room right now. And when you're honest, you're like, yeah, that's, that's me. That's where I'm at right now, David. I need help. That's why we're here. There's an anger on the inside that spews out of the mouth with negativity, and it's not even about the person they're talking to. It's about what's inside of them, and it's just the frustration that's boiling over. We need to understand this is why people do that. It's not because they're just a horrible person. It's because they're not living the way God created them to live, and everything is falling apart on the inside. And Christians, we can't stumble into those same deceptions and those same lies. That's why it says here that those who walk in false wisdom will lead to evil, disorder, and every vile practice. This is why the world is so hostile. Just think about it. The character of God is good and right. It's everything that is just in this world. The opposite of that is disorder and every vile practice. We talked about this in our, in our equality pro- podcast just a couple weeks ago, you know, the Docs of Dialogue that we had talked about this morning. Why do people fight for justice? And as they are fighting for justice, well, they have that innate desire because they are made in the character of God. But we look out there, we see people fighting for justice, and they're doing unjust things in the name of justice. That's a problem. We see people who are fighting for racial equality, but at the same time, it's just a different flavor of, of racism, Like, that's the hostility of this world. So how do you grow in true wisdom and walk away from earthly wisdom that eats away at your soul? First of all, you have to spot it, right? One of the interesting things about this passage is that James points out three attitudes that will produce certain fruits. The attitudes are bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and boasting exaggeration. And you could break it down like this. I got, I I just, if if this helps you, sometimes people like these kind of things. Attitude turns into the action, right? And just look how it breaks down. Where you have envy, you have selfish ambition. There you find disorder in every vile practice. Here's what I love about James. He will will say things that will sting a little bit, but he's always going to put your heart through the MRI. It might not be fun, but he's showing you what's in there. And here's how you spot the roots of false wisdom. First, it's earthly, okay? What does that mean, it's earthly? Isn't everything, like, here, earthly? Well, this is talking about not considering eternity. It's only about the here and now. The decisions you make and how you spend your money and how you live your life, is it all for right now, today? Or am I thinking about the future? Because if it's earthly wisdom, there's no space and there's no room for refining fire and for trials that help us to grow deeper and closer to God. There's no room for loss. There's no room for things that actually happen in the real world. So you make decisions on not what's on, on not what's going to come, but just right now, what's happening today. And we all know people like this. And if we're honest, we've all made these type of decisions at some point in our lives. This is how people just incur debilitating debt. It's like, hey, God wants me to be happy, so I'll go out and buy this motorcycle or I'll go buy this 17th pair of shoes that I'll only wear twice. And I know I'm probably, I need to stop right there, right? Am I getting too personal on this? Is the knife getting in a little too deep? No, we've all made those kind of choices. And I mean, if you stop and think about it, like at one point in time, there were silly things that you thought would make you happy that you just went for. I used to think winning a Madden tournament would make me happy. Don't think too long about the silly things that you thought would make you happy, because at first, after it's funny, it gets really sad. Because we've all been there to some extent, of of going after something today and thinking that's going to fix all of our problems. That's never the way it works. I mean, my my two-year-old girl, Monroe, love Monroe. She's the cutest in the world. Everybody sees her in church. She's usually snacking on something, right? Monroe, Monroe always likes to eat, and, and we have to tell her, hey, that's not good for you. You just ate lunch, Monroe. Like, you can't eat another snack right now. We can't eat snacks all day because we can't always do what we want to do. You have to teach her that at a, the at a of, age of two, okay? But we all have to live for something that is bigger than the desires we have today. We have to move on from such a limited view of life that is just a nearsighted look at eternity. We have to do that. Secondly, it's unspiritual. False wisdom is unspiritual. This means that it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit's power, and it has no part in the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It makes its own decisions on what it, it wants. It's, it's not about the spiritual, it's about the physical. That's false wisdom. Second Corinthians 4.18 says that the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So those spiritual things in life have more value than the things that you can handle and touch and hold. Things like love and passion, just the tenderness of relationships, these these spiritual concepts that we can't even see, those are the things that are eternal. They matter so much more. Finally, it's demonic. And here's what he means by that. It's based on lies, that are rooted in our flesh coming from our enemy. You know, what do demons do? We we talked about this a few weeks ago, but they lie incessantly. You know, they lie to us about us, and sometimes we lie to ourselves about us, but false wisdom is fueled by lies that we believe about the nature and the character of God, or it's lies that we believe about us. We get a feeling, we get an emotion, and we don't look at scripture, what God says about himself, what God says about who we are. We just, we just go all in on how we feel right now. and We don't align that with the truth. And then we get into these lies that just don't fit with what the truth of reality is. That's demonic and that's evil and it's an affront against our creator, God of the universe. We had a series in Ephesians 6 not long ago. And it was a whole series on spiritual warfare. And if you were with us in that series, I hope you remember how we define spiritual warfare. Like when you go through that whole chapter, at the end of the day, spiritual warfare is a battle for truth in your mind. That's what it is. It's a battle for truth in your mind. And that is a very real battle. It's an intense battle. And we have to go to the truth of God's word and align our emotions and our feelings with that. God's revelation tells us who he is and who we are. And when we align our feelings to that, we are changing our attitude the right way. This is how we reject the false wisdom of this world and embrace the wisdom of our creator. And in these last two verses, James is now going to compare the hostility of this world to the beautiful peacefulness that is found in wisdom from above. So verse 17 and verse 18, let's read that again. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Third point today is embrace the peace of heavenly wisdom. This is what we need to do right here. So false wisdom, it's rooted in earthliness. I mean, that's not even really a word, right? We'll just call it worldliness. You know what it is. It's, It's false wisdom. That's not all that matters. The here and now is not all that matters. True wisdom is rooted in eternity. True wisdom is not driven by today, but rather it's driven by the day that I stand in front of God and I give an account for my life. I'm looking at that. I'm focused on that. There is a day coming where you and I are going to stand in front of our creator, and we are going to give an account for everything that we have done with what he has given us. The time, the talent, and the treasure that he has given us, we are responsible for that. And for those of us who know Jesus, we're going to have to give an answer in that day. How we spent All of that energy, all of that passion, all of those gifts that he gave us. Are you ready to say, I did everything I could by your grace. I'm laying it all out. Here it is. Now I'm ready to worship you forever. Or are you going to, at that time, be like, I wish I did more. The book of Revelation tells us that in that time, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And, 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 and we're going to give an account. It's, it's, we're going to either be thrilled and receive a lot of rewards or we're going to be like, ashamed and wish we did more. And then he's going to make it all good. He's going to look at the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that he gave us. He loves us the same no matter what we do still. He's going to wipe those tears away from our eyes and then he's going to usher us into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to have an amazing party as we, as we kick off eternity with him. It's going to be amazing. But you're still going to give an account for what you do that day. That day needs to be the driver in the wisdom that you live by. Not today, which will quickly turn into yesterday, which will quickly turn into a distant memory. We need to be focused on the day to come, the day of the Lord. Now, with all these things, let me just say this. We have to remember, God isn't looking for perfection here from us right now. He's looking for progress. That's the whole book of James. It's not. I mean, you can get really worried and stressed out if you read James and you think, "Well, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I've, I'm I'm sinning here." It's not perfection. It's progress. All of these attitudes create a spirit of meekness and humility. All these attitudes that we see here in these last couple of verses, as we grow in purity and peacefulness and gentleness, those attitudes will flow into good fruit, sincerity, impartiality. And that's how we produce, over time, a harvest of righteousness. Now, let me be incredibly clear here. The moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, where you repent of your sins, confess your way, and you turn to Jesus Christ, and you put your faith in his death and resurrection, that's when you receive new life. That's when he changes you from the inside out. That's called the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes under your account. He died for your sins. He rose again. He proved that God's wrath was absorbed upon himself. And the moment that you do that, you are saved and you're a child of God. And he sees you as perfect and spotless in his eyes. But God loves you so much that he's not going to just leave you in positional righteousness. Righteousness. It's not going to just stay there. He starts to transform us from the inside out. It's not by the outside in. That's dead religion. It doesn't work. It creates stress and and all kinds of problems. But he changes your identity, which changes your activity. And that's when we start to see a harvest of righteousness. The harvest of righteousness isn't the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is actually... The, that's the given righteousness. This is actually God shaping us to live for his glory and then we start producing good works. Do you see the difference there? There is the imputed righteousness that we have and then there is the righteousness that starts coming out of us as we, as we love him and as we live for him. Jesus is the one who is creating this change in our character. James has made that very clear. But at the same time, the extent of it Revolves around us getting closer to his character. We still play a part in this, okay? He saves you, he makes you new, he gives you a new heart, but you can still wander into the same nasty, dirty paths of worldly wisdom and not be as productive and not be as fruitful. He does, he initiates the change, he's the one who is making it all happen, but you still do play a part in this as well. And you can't miss this. This is the whole point of this passage. Jesus saves you, makes you new. You go from being a dead salt pond to a freshwater spring. But James is telling you, hey, your part is to work on your attitude. Which path of wisdom are you going down with your thoughts? You aren't a puppet. You were made in the image of God. He gets more glory when you choose to love him. And this is your part. This is your part that you have to play. Walk away from worldly wisdom and walk towards Jesus to the wisdom that is above. When we look at the character of God and we see that God shows no partiality, that's his character. That's what is just. That is what is right in this world. That is the standard. And anything that shows partiality now because it's the opposite of the nature of God, is sin. So we are to live in a way that shows no partiality because we are to show God's character. That's his glory. That's how we glorify God. When we desire to show his character by showing no partiality in our dealing with our neighbors and being impartial in the way uh, that other people aren't impartial, we will stand out as light in this dark world when we recall and experience how gentle and how patient God is with us and how he forgives us and gives us chance after chance after chance, when we remember that and we take that to heart, we start living that way towards other people. And we remember that the people who were lost were in the same exact place I once was, and it's only by God's grace that he pulled me out of that. He was patient with me. He was gracious towards me. And I want to show that and reflect that character of God in my life. When we remember how much remember how much we wrestled in our own flesh, in our own desires, and when we're very much aware that we still do, we're still struggling with that from, from day to day. And how God drew us to himself, how he shows us grace, we will be full of grace and mercy towards others. We will be open to reason. We will be gentle in our conversations with other people because we will have empathy and compassion just like Jesus had for us. It's the character of God that flows out when we have the attitude that God is for his glory and he created us to be for his glory. And when we live in fulfillment of that, we are achieving our true potential. Worship team, you can come up right now. As we wrap this up, we're gonna have the kids come down now from... uh, from the top if if we could get the kids' class to come back. This is what a harvest of righteousness looks like. It's not our justification where God declared us righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's our sanctification where we are working out our salvation. We are doing the actions that produce good fruit. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Your part in changing is walking away from worldly wisdom with the attitudes that are all associated with that and looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Stand up with me right now. The first step in walking with Jesus Christ, you know what it is? Yeah, there's all these attitudes of of heavenly wisdom, like looking at the character of God. But before any of that really takes root and manifests fruit, we are to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Jesus made it very clear. When you put your faith in me, when you profess to to turn from your way and turn to my way, the first thing that you need to do to obey your Savior is to tell the world that. Baptism isn't something that saves you. Baptism is a symbolic gesture of what has happened to you. And it's telling the world that I'm following Jesus now with my life. It's the first step of obedience. We have a couple of children getting baptized today. It's going to be amazing. But I want to say, if you know Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized, you don't need to wait till Tuesday to send me an email to do that. You don't have to. You can get baptized right now. We have we have uh, Paul, Aaron, and Sarah. They're back over here on, on my my left. And if you would like to talk about getting baptized, am I, should I do this right now? If you would like to actually talk with them about, I don't know if I know Jesus Christ yet. If I have a personal relationship, you can change that today. Is all it takes is for you to look at God and say, "I'm a sinner." I know that you died for my sin and I'm asking you on your death and resurrection to forgive me and I want to start a relationship with you. That's salvation. That's where it all begins. And the very next step is to say, I'm following Jesus with my life and I want to be baptized. I want to tell this church publicly that I'm following him in baptism. So the kids are getting ready to be baptized, but seriously, I want the Holy Spirit to lead you right now. There's people in this room that aren't baptized that should be baptized. And if the Lord is telling you, do it today, don't let anything hold you back from doing it today. We're going to close this service with a response to him. We're going to praise him for who he is because he makes dead things alive. That's what he did in our lives as he pulled us out of darkness into the light And now he's sending us out as ambassadors of the light into the darkness, right back in. But he is the one who's changed us and then we start making the decisions with our attitudes, with the way we think about who we are to change our actions for his glory. Let's praise him for that right now. my orphan heart was given a name my morning grew quiet my feet rose to dance when death was arrested and my life began for your grace